As always, it's a tremendous privilege, a tremendous privilege for me to be here. It's also very humbling. Like I said, there's always the awareness that, that I have to stand and preach to men who are greater than myself, who know more, who have been through more, but that's one of the humbling things about preaching, to know that Well, all we are is the grace of God. Any good, any strength, any benefit from our lives, it is all owing to the grace of Christ. I was asked to teach on encouragement, but and that is what I'll do, but I want to talk to you about a source of encouragement that you can take with you and that you can practice every day of your life, and that is prayer. We are here in a place where a great deal of attention is given to the word. And you cannot emphasize, overemphasize the importance of the scriptures, the study of scriptures, the proclamation of scriptures. But very few people know that um, this ministry as well as any ministry that bears fruit, it cannot be explained just in terms of expository preaching. If you say it can be, then you would have a long line of godly men to argue with, especially the prince of expositors, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Bethany Jones said of her husband, Martin, that you will never understand my husband as an evangelist, as a expositor, if you do not first understand my husband as a man of prayer. Spurgeon would even say, go as far to say that if he was given a choice at a conference or whether to preach or to pray, he would pray. Now, this is coming from the prince of preachers. When the apostles met one of their first tests in chapter six of the book of Acts, and it was a test, all of you, if you're ministers, you've had this test. There was a valid need laid before them, a need that if you do not meet, you come under the discipline of God, because true religion is to take care of Hellenistic widows. And orphans. And there was a great need. But they stood their ground. They made sure the need was met. But they were not the ones. Meeting it. Because they said we will not neglect. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Now I think it's very interesting there that. Prayer. They mentioned prayer prior to the word. And I do not think exegetically you can prove that that's because prayer is more important than the word. But maybe prayer is put first because it is the one thing we are most likely to neglect first. I know many men who do study hours a day and they would actually be willing to study 
from the moment they get up in the morning until the moment they go to bed at night. But if you ask those same men about their prayer life, they will often bow their head and say, I need to pray more. As a matter of fact, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, and I have said many times, and others, I suppose, have repeated the same, I never met a man of God on his deathbed who regretted praying too much. Another thing that I would like to say, I often tell young men, I'll say, of course, the scriptures are an infallible guide to your life. But there is another guide, not infallible, but usually true. And they say, well, what would that be? I said, your flesh. And they say, well, how can my flesh be a guide? Well, just get out a piece of paper and a pencil and write down all the things that your flesh hates. Those are probably the things you ought to be doing. Your flesh hates the study of the scriptures. You could sit and watch maybe a television program or a football game, or you could go out into some recreation and you will not feel your body will not tense up. Your leg will not shake. You will not feel antsy. But the moment you sit down to study, it seems as though the flesh has a violent reaction. But how much more does it react against praying? Because you you can study a great deal and become very renowned for your wisdom. And the flesh will like that. Flesh likes it when everyone wants to shake your hand. When you're considered an expositor. You see, no one sees your prayer life. No one knows about your prayer life unless you talk about it a great deal. And if you do, you don't have a prayer life. (laughs) The old southern preacher, old school, Conrad Merle. Someone asked him one time, said, we're going to have a prayer conference. Do you know anyone that we could uh, have to speak on prayer? Brother Merle said this, well, I know men who pray And don't talk about it. And I know men who talk about it and don't pray. So no, there's no one I can recommend for your conference. (laughs) But I found it amazing that there are are professors here, one in particular, that has written a great deal on prayer. And you can't explain a ministry or fruit-bearing apart from prayer, apart from prayer. Just before we go to our, the actual text, because this is just this is a fellowship time, just a time of encouragement. Just look with me for a minute at the book of John. And look in chapter 15. Now, our topic today is Christ, the man of prayer. But. When someone asks me about prayer, or especially when a young person asks me about the power of the Holy Spirit, I just got asked this question last week. A young man, you know, I lack power, he said, power to live, power to preach, 
the power of the Holy Spirit. And he expected me to talk to him about praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. I like to, I prefer saying it this way, greater and greater manifestations of the life and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and ministries. But instead of talking to him about that, I took him here. Because, you see, prayer is born out of need. So you can artificially speak about prayer. I'm going to set a certain time to pray. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to set my watch. But true praying is born out of need. So when someone says, I want to pray, I want to learn to pray more. I say, you need to know more about your need. And the more you know about your need, the more you're going to pray. You say, well, I don't have the discipline to pray. You don't need discipline. You say, what do you mean you don't need discipline? Well, you do, but I'm, I want to speak in hyperbole right now. I want to give you, to bring forth a point, I want to give you something of an exaggerated illustration. Um, I was in Peru years ago, and when I was a very, very young man, I, I, I tried to learn to surf. I know that sounds funny, but I tried to learn to surf. I, I needed some sort of hobby. And so... Um, I went out on a day when they had the red flag. I thought it was a pretty flag. I didn't know it meant if you go in the water, you're going to die. But I saw some guys out there surfing, so I thought, I'll give it a shot. They don't look too big. And I got out there, and, and I realized I was in trouble. But then all of a sudden, I heard someone, sounded like a sea lion. I thought it was a sea lion. I, I heard someone coughing and spitting and I turned around, and it was a young man on a boogie board. Now, he was half my size. I was a lot bigger back then. He was half my size. He was on this boogie board, and his eyes were as big around as saucers, and he was terrified. And so I, I paddled my board over there, and I thought, i got to help this guy. And then I realized, he is so terrified. He's going to grab a hold of me. He's going he's to kill me. I mean, this kid is terrified. So I thought, well, I'm just going to hit him. As hard as I can, knock him out, something, because this, this is the only way it's going to work. And then I thought, if I swing and miss, this guy's really going to be scared. <laughs> and so I saw these real surfers a little distance from us, and so I started yelling, you know, for help. I went over there partway. I left the young man, and I said, look, there's a guy drowning over here. And they were real surfers, probably seven of them, all in tremendous shape. And I noticed it took them 20, 25 minutes to get him in. And I noticed their faces. They were scared to death. Not of the waves. I mean, they were real surfers. They were scared of this kid. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. Just in a normal state of mind, you could have whipped this boy with one arm. When he was in that water, he wasn't any stronger than when he was on the beach. It wasn't a matter of discipline. It wasn't a matter of strength of will. What made this little guy so ferocious, so tenacious, that he could have drowned three men who were trying to help him? It was fear. It was need. He knew that if someone doesn't grab him, if someone doesn't take hold of him, 
If someone doesn't lead him, if someone doesn't pull him out, he's going to die. Now, in the Christian ministry, when we see a man who is devoted to the word, we automatically think strength of will, don't we? He's a disciplined man. We see a man who's a man of prayer. What do we automatically think? He's a disciplined man. Why do we always look to men? Why do we always think it must be strength? When I want to tell you, it's just the opposite. Men who study the word are desperate men. They know they have no wisdom at all. They have nothing they can say to anyone. They have nothing to guide the steps of their own life. They're convinced of their weakness, and they're convinced if God does not guide him, them through his inerrant, infallible, inspired word, they're going to die. They're going to sin. Men who pray, why do they pray? Strength of will? No, out of desperation. They have seen their weakness, they've seen the enemy. They've seen the greatness of the task. They've seen it. It's clear. And they can do nothing in themselves. So it's not strength that makes men study and obey. It's not strength that makes men to pray. It's the realization, just like that young man in the water, if God does not move on my behalf, not only I cannot minister, I cannot preach, but if God does not move on my behalf, I cannot live. I used to tell young, young preachers, you can't preach without the power of God. Now I realize I can't tie my shoes without the power of God. I can't pray without the power of God. And, and Jesus, in, in, in chapter 15 of John, the cross is in view now. This is one of the last things he's going to say to his men. And we look here over and over. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear that that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you. Unless you abide in me. This is not hyperbole. This is straight up fact. You do not have to be an arbalist to know to understand this text. Find the most fruitful apple tree you can find. And on that tree, find the most fruitful limb and cut it off. And leave it on the ground. And come back just even the next day. And the apples will begin to brown. And soon will rot. And no fruit will take its place. Do you see that? And you say, well, it takes a few days to die. The moment you cut that branch, death began to take authority over it. So it is a constant abiding because you're constantly afraid of self, of sin, of Satan. Of uselessness in the kingdom. You abide because you're weak. 
You abide because you recognize your weakness. And how do you recognize your weakness? We can do this the hard way or we, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And for most of us, it takes both. The easy way to recognize your strength is to study Scripture. And Scripture will reveal to you your, your weakness. That's the easy way. If you want to know how weak you are, study Scripture. And in time... Through sound theology, you will know you are weak and you will cast yourself upon Christ. But most of us are far too foolish for that. And that's why we have trials. Things that come into our life that absolutely we cannot overcome. And they desperately drive us to the place where we should always have been. Clinging to Christ. Now he goes on and he says, verse five, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I am the vine. He doesn't say I'm going to be a vine. I may be a vine or I'll be a vine sometimes. He says, I am the vine. Period. That's it. It's a fact. He is. It's a reality. A present tense, ever abiding reality. He is the vine. But look, this is the part that gets me. You are the branches. He doesn't say you're, you, you have to become them. He doesn't say there are certain conditions. If you are regenerate, you are Christian, you are truly a child of God, you are, you are, you are, you are what? You are, you are a branch. It's a reality. And you need to live in that reality. Now, if branches could talk, They would tell you their greatest fear would be to not draw sap from the vine. Because they know that the moment that happens, the moment they're cut off. They're dead. They're fruitless. Now, you and I, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. But we can become quite unproductive. Because there is a sense, a consciousness that we should cultivate through the study of Scripture of absolute dependence upon Christ. I I used to lament my, my lack of education. I wish that I could have studied in a place like this. I did not. I sometimes I have lamented that. I really am not a great intellect. But I realize this when I get up in a pulpit, I know that I have nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing to fall back on. Nothing. If God does not move on my behalf, I have no hope. And I'm not a strong man. I'm not a courageous man. I have nothing. Nothing. And I am not trying to impress you with some false humility. It is a reality. And if you knew me and if you walked with me, you would see that. I have nothing. Nothing. 
He goes on. Look at verse seven. We don't have time to go through everything. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, isn't this amazing? The wisdom of scripture. Here we have the word and prayer. The word and prayer. I know men who are word, 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 word and don't pray much. And the word somehow rings hollow. And doesn't make it to the core. I know men who pray, 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 but neglect the word and their their prayers are oftentimes emotional, unbiblical, anti-biblical. But here, his word coming in us, it's like breathing in the word. Breathing out prayer, breathing in the word, breathing out prayer. I know that most of you can identify with this. Have you been in situations? Where literally either in your life or your ministry, where literally apart from God, you couldn't even breathe. You felt like you were just going to die. That there was no hope. There was nothing, no way out, no escape. And every time you breathed in it was a promise from God that you held on to. And every time you breathed out, it was a prayer. And oftentimes it was just one word, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, have you ever come to a place in your life where you couldn't even sleep at all, except that you just say his name over and over and over again? Or think about it is that should be our constant, in a sense, a present tense reality. Now, it's not. It's not for, for me either. But hopefully there is in all of us a growing dependence a growing dependence on him. Oh, brothers, I love saying this every time there's this one girl I think of, and she is a precious believer and shows fruit, but struggles with assurance. And I love going to her and saying, sitting down, looking at her and say, sister, you're forgetting. What are you forgetting? What are you forgetting? What this old man always tells you? There's one only one hero in this story. And it's Jesus, your elder brother. He's everything. He really is. He's the giver of life. The giver of wisdom. The giver of strength. He is an ocean vast and deep. Not of not of love alone, even though I don't want to diminish that in any way, not of love alone, brethren, but of every good and perfect gift of everything needed for life and ministry and piety. It's found in him. And people ask me how, 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 and I have to tell them the same answer, the point of violating every rule of redundancy. How? I'm sorry. I just have to keep giving you the same answer, the word of God in prayer. I can't give you anything more complex that will tantalize your flesh. And I can't give you anything easier that will make it easier on your flesh. He says, if my words abide in you, look at that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. My father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you see the fruit bearing? 
You, you don't walk out into an apple orchard and hear groaning, do you? Groaning, the apple trees groaning and groaning and twisting and writhing. You don't. They're just there. And they're bearing fruit. Why are they bearing fruit? Because that's what they are. They're fruit-bearing trees. And how do we bear fruit? Not by reading some book from some man who just grew a megachurch. Not by read, don't read any book that begins with ten steps or five steps or this or that. Gosh, I hope there's no authors here who wrote a book about ten steps. I'm sure your book is an you know, exception. Even when, I, even when I'm not trying to get in trouble, I get in trouble. I remember years ago in Romania and the girls were all around my wife asking her questions. And finally, one of the girls said after about two or three days, she goes, you know, Chato, I love you and everything. But why is every almost every answer you need to spend more time in the word of God and prayer? That's almost every time you ask a question, that's your answer. Why is it? She goes, because you need to spend more time in the word of God and prayer. Why are we always looking for something else in the church? Always looking for something else with regard to piety? It's the word of God and prayer. And then, I mean, it just goes on and on throughout this whole text. And this is not the text. Look at 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. I mean, these are some of the last words of Christ. And look what he's talking about. <laughs> Saturate your life in my word. Saturate your life in my word. Breathe out prayer. Fruit is the result of prayer. Pray, ask, 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 ask. You see... Now, let's just do a quick pass through. Let, I want us to go for a minute to the book of Luke. Our Lord is fully God. Our Lord was fully man. And only a fool would rush in where angels fear to tread. Into those declarations. Because we can seek to be profound and we can be profoundly wrong. It is it is a truth. That he is God and he is man without mixture, without confusion. And yet the mystery of that. But we do know this. There is a relationship between the son. And the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a relationship between the son and the father in prayer. And we know this. Although we cannot say how often or always or this or that, we know that much of what Christ did, he did as a man and he did in the power of the Holy Spirit and in absolute dependence upon his father. And that is how he can be our example. And so here we have, I want to look at Christ in his humanity for a moment. And here we have the perfect man. 
And yet we see him living a life of prayer. Look at Luke 5. Verse 15. But the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. This is such a worthy text. I believe it was Tozer, and I think that also Martin Lloyd-Jones made a comment on this, that, that oftentimes God will convert a young man and he will give himself in an exceptional manner to the word of God in prayer and in that gain a power in ministry and then become so busy in ministry that he forsakes the very thing that made him exceptional. And here we see our Lord will buy into none of that foolishness. We see perfect Wisdom. News about him was spreading. I mean, he's becoming popular. Every Bible conference wants him to speak. And look what it says. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In all our ministries, I I, I read a I don't often agree with with secular thought, but I, I heard a a man says something. Actually, I read it years ago, and he said this. I think it was uh, Jung said it. He said, busyness is not of the devil. Busyness is the devil. Pastor, are we busy about so many things? Are we busy about so many things that we find ourselves Wednesday afternoon We have not studied. We find ourselves Saturday night. We have not given ourselves to pray. We're wore out. There's no there's no question about devotion. We're wore out. There's nothing left. Oh, brothers, this is the Achilles heel. You know, uh, whenever a church I know is really problematic and now they don't have a pastor and sometimes they'll come and say, will you preach for me? And I said, I'll preach for you, but I'm going to talk to you about your new pa- the next pastor you're getting. And I said, give me a whiteboard. I know it's the age of computers, but I want a whiteboard. Give me a marker. And I'll look at the congregation and this is what I'll say to them. How many days a week you want your pastor to work? How many days a week? Seven? Well, No. Six? Well, no, five and a half, six. Okay. Five and a half, six days. How many hours a day do you want him to work? 24? Well, no. 16? No. Well, how many? I don't know. 10? 10 hours? Okay. 10 hours. Now, of those 10 hours, how many hours do you want him? Preparing himself in the word of God and preparing his messages that he's going to preach to your children and determine their eternal destiny. Half hour, 15 minutes. No, not that you put it that way. Okay, how, how much? They said, we never thought this way. And I said, this is the way you need to start thinking. Five hours? Four hours? A day? What, what, what do you want? And when they answer that, I go, okay, 
Now, how long do you want him praying for your soul? For your eternal soul. Ten minutes? That'll be more than most pastors. What do you want? And their eyes start opening up. We need deacons, but real ones. We, we need to change. Yes, you do. Do you see? Show your people these things, but only show them these things if you're not lazy. If you're lazy, don't show them these things. But if you're a hardworking man of God, show them these things. Their greatest need is for you to stand before them with the word of God and expound it. Their greatest need is for you to be a man of prayer. And that's what we see here in Christ. And, and when, if you do that, God will bless your ministry according to his providence, not according to the standards of this age. Do not judge yourself by conference speakers, because on the day of judgment, they won't amount to much. Pastors. Pastors. Now, that's the height of ministry. But when you become busy, never give in to the temptation to be too busy. And look at Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When was the last time we spent the whole night in prayer to God? Over a decision? Really? Think about it. Isn't this convicting? We have decisions to make. We cannot trust in the arm of the flesh. And although this Christ. Had a perfect understanding of the will of God. What he knew, he knew correctly. Without flaw. He was waiting, though, to hear from his father as the servant of his father. He was waiting to hear and he tarried all night. And he made a decision about one of his men. Knowing that that man was a devil, but knowing that it was the will of God that he be chosen. It's kind of counterintuitive. Prayer is necessary in decision making, brethren. Prayer. Not that you're going to hear some voice, but that scripture itself, truth itself, wisdom itself is going to become much clearer as you pray. And it brings honor and glory to God to seek counsel from him. Look at Luke nine. Some eight days Verse 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. When was the last time you took along some of your men just to pray, not to talk about prayer, not to just teach on prayer, but to actually pray? If you have other men, other elders or staff or something working with you. Do you pray together? And you, as maybe the, the leader, the head elder, whatever you call yourself. Do you lead the men to pray? Jesus did. 
Look at 9.17. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up. Twelve baskets full. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? This feeding the 5,000 was a great victory. I mean, if, if I could do something like that, I'd consider it a great victory. What happens after great victories? You've had them. In the pulpit, in the ministry. What happens? Problems. Almost every time I, I tell an illustration because I'm an itinerant. So, you know, I'm out in some foreign country and I'm preaching for a week and a half and people are converted and the devil is fighting and all these things. And I come home and I get out of the car, the champion of the Lord. And I walk toward the door and my wife looks out the window and she gasps in amazement throws open the door. My children run out throwing flowers everywhere. And my wife grabs me and says, Honey, you're home. My champion, my hero, your best meal is prepared. That's not what happens. (laughs) After the greatest victories, I come home and my wife is standing in the door with her arms crossed and her foot tapping like this going, Finally, you're home running around everywhere. Now get in there before I kill those children. (laughs) I know that after the greatest spiritual victories, please don't put this on, don't video this. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm not afraid of any of you, but I am afraid of that woman back there (laughs) tapping her foot right now. But I will say this, honey, most of the time I deserve it because you're always right. (laughs) Maybe that will save me. But brothers, is it not true that you will get the wind kicked out of you after almost every victory? And it's necessary. It is a thorn in the flesh. It keeps you where you need to be. But what I'm saying is after a victory, it doesn't mean lay down your sword that everything's okay because you're going to get ambushed. We have to pray. We have to be men of prayer. Always praying that when you wake up in the morning, you refuse to move a quarter of an inch to the left and a quarter of an inch to the right until you say, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil, knowing that before you make it to the bathroom, you could commit atrocious sin. Need, need. Need. Now, with the time that we have left, I want us to go to Mark for a moment. Mark chapter 1. Some people have said, and I heartily agree, that if you, if you read the book of Mark correctly, you will be out of breath. Because it's like these... Just rapid snapshots of Christ just moving through his ministry with diligence, speed, earnestness. It's astounding. And and just look with me for a minute in chapter one. Look at verse 10. Immediately coming out of the water. Is that word immediate? Look at verse 10. Immediately the spirit 
impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Look at verse 20. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. 21. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Look at verse 28. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Look at 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon to his sick mother-in-law. Immediately, immediately. There was never a man more busy, more given to the work, more given to exhausting work. Do you remember when he was touched and he noticed that what virtue went out of him? If you've ever been after preaching for an hour and then be in three hours of counseling and you literally feel like you have been drugged through a field by a tractor. You can't even lift your arms. You can't even say your own name. Now, I want you to look at verse 32. Then evening came after the sun had set. They began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed and the whole city had gathered at the door, the whole city. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, remember years ago in a place called Santa Rosa, in the northern Andes, in the, in the, in the area of, of Piura. Um, there was a great movement of God there that had, that had to do with the ministry of a man by the name of Angel Comenares. And, and literally, hundreds of churches, and I'm not exaggerating, were left in the wake over a period of about 30-some years. And, and this man was like a father to me. He was a little Peruvian man about that big, lived in a... Part of his house was just dirt floor, and he was so, so wise, such a godly man. He was, he, he was, he was a father to me. I learned a lot from him. And I remember going up to Santa Rosa, and there was about, I don't know, 1,100 mountain men and women that had gathered there. Some of them traveled two, three days by burro and truck and things like that. And they were a very good people. But in that particular event, I brought a doctor with me. And they found out there was a doctor. The doctor was literally locked in a room for three days and nights in an adobe hut while people stood in line hours all day with sick children, with ailments, even though we would constantly tell them he, he, he only brought a little bit of medicine. He can't operate. He can't do this. But they were so desperate that I saw these good people at time become very frustrated. Almost angry. He couldn't even hardly leave the hut and, 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 and go to the, the restroom or rest or anything because he would just be almost tackled by people who were absolutely desperate. They had no hospital. They had no doctor. Their children are ill. They need help. And they wouldn't even take no. They wouldn't take a reasonable answer. So when you think about this picture, if you look at medieval art, Jesus is there and everyone's in line with their hands folded, patiently waiting. That's not what happened. It was mob. 
And he actually could do something about it. But if he was touched once by a woman with faith and he noticed virtue went out from him, how much virtue went out from him, how much strength. Imagine he's done this entire ministry and now it says, verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him. So it, it's nighttime. And I can assure you they didn't stop at nine o'clock. This went on and on, probably through the night. And then it says in verse 35, gives emphasis in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Now, I do not want to use this as a proof text to tell you ministers should not sleep. Ministers should probably sleep more. They just need to stop watching television. We need sleep. And so this is not a proof text for you to go out and live on two hours of sleep at a night. This is simply a proof text showing us that in exceptional situations, prayer is more important than sleep. Meeting with the Lord. You know, conferences make this most difficult, don't they? Because you've got to get up early. You've got to get to a place. I love conferences. I love this conference. I'd come back to this conference even if I wasn't asked to preach. I would come here. I, I love it here. But we'd have to be careful, don't we? In such a hurry, oh, I've got to preach, I've got to preach. There's a lot of people here, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to meet with missionaries. No, you really only got to do what you got to do. And that's meet with the Lord. That's what we have to do. And so he, he's there and look what happens. He knows the need. He loves like no one's ever loved. And yet while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Can you be alone? Remember, I said that last night in my sermon. Can you be alone? This is one of the great. Virtues, this is one of the things you need. To be able to be alone. Your wife ought to see that look in your eye. That gazes past her and into heaven and know you're a man who, yes, you must spend time with your wife and your family and your congregation. But above all things, you need to be alone. Because unless you're alone with him, you'll be no good to anyone else. When you're among them. You need to be alone with him. Our greatest need. So that when we walk out in front of the congregation and we open our mouth. The word of God is expounded and the people know they have been in the presence of a man who's been in the presence of God. And, and look, look what happens I think we've all had this happen to us. Verse 36, Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. Now, I, I can't go beyond this. That's all that text says. Everyone was looking for him. But why were they looking for him? Need, right? Could it be that Peter? Is this another one of Peter's rebukes? What's, what's wrong with you? You're out here by yourself praying. 
All those people back there need you. They're looking for you. They need you. Yet even the Christ. Even this perfect man. This son of God, this God, the son. Knows. No. The greatest need of these people. Is that I meet with my father. That's their greatest need. Now, we must love people. We must love people and we must be with people. But we're no good to people. If we're not there before God. If we're not with him, he should be the greatest reality to us in any room. A heightened awareness, not of some some mystic experience, that's not what I'm talking about, but just a conscience that has been made keenly aware through the study of Scripture of the omnipresence of God. That he is a greater reality to us in this room than any man that we can lay eyes upon, not because we feel something, but because we know something. Lastly, I would just like to say this of a few more minutes. Go with me to the book of Luke. Verse one. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John also taught his disciples. I love I used to have enough time. I would make wooden longbows, primitive longbows. I love to make them and hunt with them. And I learned because I found men who were exceptional at making longbows. It was the thing that stood out in their life. They could make a longbow. And I sought them out. That was the extraordinary thing about their life. I didn't ask them to teach me manners. I didn't ask them to teach me theology. I asked them to teach me how to cut a tree right and what time and the percentage of moisture in the wood and how do you bend this thing without breaking it and how do you string it the first time and how do you because they were good. It was what they were good at. So if you're going to ask advice, you're going to ask advice from someone that you've observed and you say to yourself, this is the most exceptional thing in their life. Isn't it amazing they never asked him, they never said, teach us to heal. They never said, teach us to walk on water. They never said, teach us to cast out demons. They never said, teach us to raise the dead. Now, all those things, are, at least in my book, are quite exceptional. They never asked him. But they asked him, teach us to pray. Could it have been? That Christ's communion with his father was the most exceptional thing in his life. That it was astounding. I remember Leonard Ravenhill saying one time, and I think I identified the man he was talking about, but I'm not sure, so I'm not going to say his name. He talks about one time walking into a room on a saint who was known for his prayer life. And Leonard Ravenhill said, I walked in not knowing that he had given himself to prayer. 
and said, it terrified me. And I said nothing. And I quietly backed out of the room. And I think someone asked, why didn't you turn around and walk out? He said, because you don't turn your back on royalty. I have prayed with men that I could barely stand to pray with them. It was such glory, such power, such intimacy, such reality. Maybe this should be one of our goals, Pastor. I guess we'd all get excited if someone walked up to us and said, Teach me to preach like you preach. Wouldn't it be something if someone walked up and said, teach me to pray like you pray. Also, brethren. Christ, speaking of the temple, quoted scripture and said that God's house would be a house of prayer. How is your congregational praying? Is it 30 minutes long and basically a 20 minute business meeting where people gossip about what's going on in the church and then someone gets up and says a prayer that no one listens to? Teach your people to pray. Teach them to pray congregationally. I can assure you it's going to take you a couple of years to teach them to pray congregationally. Teach them to gather together as a church and pray. Teach them how to pray as a congregation. I wish I had about two hours because I would do it here right now. Because we need to learn how to pray. We need to teach our people how to pray. We need to teach them how to pray like a congregation. And we need to have special meetings of prayer. And we need to have solemn assemblies going through difficult times. And we need to pray. But not to worry. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But if things keep going as they are in America, I won't have to encourage you to pray. You will pray. But wouldn't it be better to learn to pray from Scripture than from trial? So let's pray. God bless you.